0: Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Dr. Reynolds, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, it's a joy to have you on today. i um, really excited about the topic. Uh, we're talking about your book, The Life Worth Living, um, Disability, Pain, and Morality. And uh, so we're talking about the philosophy of disability and um, kind of you picking apart the ableist conflation, um, which uh, we've we've tried to do this before and the internet betrayed us. So thank you for your patience and coming back on. But uh before we kind of get started, talk to us a little bit about how you um, got into philosophy, and how did you become interested in philosophy of disability in particular?
1: Yeah, I uh, my route into philosophy is quite random, honestly. Um, I went to college at the University of Oregon just because I thought you like had to go to college after high school, and it was down the road, and um, I was going to do I think music or music business. I was uh, guitar was my main passion in life at the time. And I ended up feeling uneasy about making the thing that I loved the most, like my day job. And mm-hmm. I ended up um, just taking a bunch of kind of random classes, sociology, religious studies classes. And I had a one credit course that was taught by a philosopher. I didn't know what philosophy was. I'd, I'd like, I'd heard the word, but I didn't know like what you would do in a philosophy class. I didn't know what philosophers did but it was super interesting. Like every single time uh, he talked and everything we read was just like fascinating. So I'd take another class, I take a full blown class with him, And same thing, loved it. Take another philosophy class with a different philosophy professor, loved it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, damn, I really like this. What do, what, what do I do? And they're like, well, you can get a philosophy degree. I'm like, okay, well, what do you do with that? And of course I didn't realize at the time Philosophy degrees—you know—that's actually one of the most useful degrees you can get in higher ed because it—it it gives you such a transferable set of skills, and being able to think and write uh, clearer and in a more—and also in a more nuanced manner—it kind of helps you almost, almost no matter what you're doing. There's obviously some exceptions, but I was like, "Well, what? How did you get here?" You know, I'd say that to my professors, like, "How did you get here?" And they're like, "Well, you'd have to go to grad school after this." and And you go on the job market where like 500 people, all of whom also have PhDs in philosophy, are fighting for like one slot. Uh, You know, it's a rough path. And I'm like, I'll try that. Um, Because I was, (laughs) you know, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. And I was like, well, I'll give it a shot. You know, and I'm very lucky that I'm I'm still able to do it. My route into philosophy of disability, though, is far less random. Uh, In some ways, it feels almost inevitable. Um, because my brother, uh, who is my best friend was born with muscular dystrophy, cerebral palsy and hydrocephalus, uh, he was about two and a half years younger than me. And then when I was around, I don't know, somewhere eight or nine or so, my mom became disabled through a combination of things, degenerative disc disease, um, severe TMJ, fibromyalgia, all of which led her to live the life of a chronic pain sufferer. Uh, And then fast forward many, many years, as it as happens to so many people in life, I found myself disabled, though in a very different way through psychiatric and psychological stuff. Um, But the point being that from as far back as I can remember, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was constantly thinking about disability, how we uh, distinguish between being able-bodied and disabled. I was constantly witnessing the ways in which my brother Jason, would be treated very differently than me. And then my mom would be treated very differently than either of us. And all sorts of assumptions about quality of life, uh, would, because Jason was disabled in a way that his... schnurp. did you want to say hi? This is... Okay. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, my miniature dachshund decided that it's uh, time to, to say yes. hello to everyone. Yes.
0: Hello, schnurp. Happy to meet you. The-
1: hello, schnurp. Do you have anything to say about philosophy? He's getting camera shy. All right. I was Um, waiting for
0: that wishbone moment,
1: you know? Um, Yeah. 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 He definitely speaks English. He's just being shy. Yeah. Um, So, especially around quality of life, because my brother was disabled in a way, you know, required 24 hour care and he required care for his basic needs. Um, even when we were in medical settings, you know, whether it was ICU for something acute or just a regular appointment, I would watch medical professionals make assumptions about his quality of life, either that it was, uh, low quality of life, or even to the point of wondering why his life was worth living and why we were caring for him, which of course was extremely upsetting to me, but also it was absurd to me because it was so obvious actually living with Jason that mm. he had one of the, uh, he still to this day I think had one of the higher quality of life <laughs> uh, during his time on earth than almost anyone I've ever met um, he was extremely happy and joyful and lived a great life it's just a life that also required a lot of very specific sorts of you know supports and care but anyway this is all to say I was thinking about disability by virtue of my existence for many years. And it was in grad school that I got exposed to disability studies, mm-hmm. right? This big interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary field that's been around since the 80s. And then also philosophy of disability, a smaller uh, field, but there's been work in this area since the 90s. Um, and then I was like, oh my God, you know, I, I loved philosophy, but I wanted you know, th- this was this just was where my heart was at in terms of how I wanted to spend my time in research, how I wanted to spend my time teaching, and what I wanted to de- devote my life uh, um, as an academic to working on, working in, talking about, you know, all that, all that stuff. Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so I <laughs> we talked about this last time, but it's just once you lay it out, it seems so so ridiculous but there are these underlying assumptions built into philosophy from the very beginning you know you mentioned some of the examples from aristotle um uh a couple of the other ones escape me but like you you don't have to look very hard to find the, them talking about um low quality of life or the life not worth living when it comes to disabled people yes. um and so you break down the what you call the ableist conflation, and it's the argument for this lower quality of life. And I, I'm just going to read like the the four steps to it. And if you don't mind, just talking us through that, I think that's a great place to start. Is then, yep. uh, you you construct your own kind of answer uh, after. But uh, so, first premise: disability necessarily involves a lack or deprivation of a natural good. Number two, deprivation of a natural good is a harm. Number three, harm causes or is itself a form of pain and suffering. Given one through three, disability comes along with or directly causes pain and suffering. So yes. if you can give some examples of this that is- in philosophy <laughs> and how do you pull yeah. that apart?
1: Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is... Um- I was giving a talk a year or two ago and, and referenced the abelist conflation and this kind of formula and someone raised their hand and they were like, no one actually thinks that. And I just kind of had to shake my head and I'm like, um I, I'm not saying no one has said it in that particular form, but people have made arguments and have, um, have explained themselves, explained their political theories, explained their understanding of human nature with those sets of assumptions built in Whether it's Aristotle, whether it's Kant, whether it's John Stuart Mill, um, I think you can even find this gets slightly more complicated, but you have similar sorts of moves in Taoist traditions and Buddhist traditions, depending upon where exactly we're looking. Um, And I, as someone who's originally, I mean, my graduate training is in the history of philosophy. I see this, the ablest conflation and those sets of assumptions, which are often implicit, but sometimes they're just explicit when like Socrates is, says um, on his deathbed three days before he's about to drink the hemlock. And he's like, is life worth living in a body that's in a bad and corrupted condition, which is about as close as you would get in Attic Greek, it's a uh, peperumenon chi, I can't remember the Greek, but uh, it's about as close as you would get in Greek to the English term disability. They didn't have a catch-all phrase like we do in English. Right. Uh, and he asks the question and it's it's meant to be rhetorical, like Crito, his friend responds, in no way, like of right, course right. life is not worth living with a body that's in a bad corrupted condition in a body we would today call disabled. So I see this assumption all over, this ableist conflation, Disability with pain and suffering. I see it all across history, and the project of the book is to say why the hell <laughs> have people thought this? Mm. Why have so many people across so many traditions made this ableist conflation? And let's instead of just saying, you know, as as you'll sometimes see in disability rights circles, you'll just go that's wrong, and then you know flip the bird and kind of you know th- there's no debate about it. I wanted to do in the book be like let's take this seriously. Let's yeah. assume that these assumptions are correct. Do they pan out? Is there something to them? Because uh, it sure seems, well, one would hypothesize that there must be something to that assumption that tracks lived experience if it shows up over and over again across millennium traditions. And the book ends up saying, oh, there is something to the, to the ableist conflation. There is a reason why people have made this mistake, but it is a mistake. It is based hmm. upon multiple sets of misunderstandings, namely misunderstandings about the nature of what disability is, misunderstandings about the nature of pain and suffering, and then, most importantly, in a certain way, this is how the book ends misunderstandings of ability, of the yeah. meaning of the I can. Um, and that it takes, you know, six, it's pretty much the course of the whole book to really uh, put all the nails in the coffin <laughs> of the ableist conflation it takes me quite some time to do it
0: yeah absolutely uh, so talk to us a little bit you know in the first part you deal with pain what are some of the theories of pain that you uh deal with what do you think are ones that i think most people would resonate with when they think about it and uh how do you pull that apart i mean you you, you give a uh I, I love your approach of giving very descriptive uh, one of the things about this philosophy of disability is that most people don't have this lived experience. So the two phenomenologies you give, the phenomenology of chronic pain and the phenomenol- phenomenology of multiple sclerosis, I think are very valuable in how descriptive they are and that creation of um, imagination and uh, I don't know if empathy is the right word, but maybe leaning towards empathy, if that makes sense. So, yeah. If you could talk us through the the pain side of it first, I'd really appreciate that.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so one of the things that was especially difficult about starting with pain is it's something that everyone thinks they know intimately. And some people do know various sorts of pain experiences quite intimately. Um, But there is this very extremely common move, and this is common, I don't care who you are, whether you're a professional academic, whether you're in construction, whether, you know, Whatever it is, where you um, people are tempted to extrapolate or generalize from their experiences of pain, right? To then think that they know what it is actually like to, for example, live in chronic pain. So, like, I don't know, just because someone's had their arm broken or they had that one month that they had an illness, you know, whatever. And then, like, oh, well, chronic pain surely would have this sort of structure because it's just like that. But, um, but has a longer duration and maybe higher intensity. But lo and behold, that's just false. Um, And the the first two chapters are set up to say like, chapter one says, here's some of the most dominant ways that pain is understood. Uh, I talk about the religious moral understanding of pain where pain is primarily thought of as a kind of uh, debt that one pays to the divine. I talk about neurobiological theories of pain which are, uh, primarily understood in terms of evolutionary biology as being adaptive. Uh, chronic pain is maladaptive, but pain as a general phenomenon is adaptive. You, you, people who do not experience pain, who have pain and asymbolia almost all die by their late twenties because they don't have a feedback system to tell them when something's going wrong.
0: (laughs) Right. It's its own form of disability. Like that's like a major problem.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, I talk about humanist understandings of pain, which are, uh, if people are familiar with Elaine Scary, uh, you know, this is kind of the big body and pain move of like, oh, well, if we were more understanding of the way in which everyone experiences pain, there's kind of this move towards the general and the universal. Then I talk about existentialist understandings, drawing on 20th century thinkers like Sartre. And then I end with medical understandings of pain at a kind of clinical, uh, 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 from a clinical perspective, so thinking about questions of diagnosis and and things like the pain scale and and all of this, yeah, the, the faces, argue, right? The, the, the you yes, the, the, the happy yes. face
0: to the frowny face. Uh, just actually, that had...
1: thing...
0: <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, I I just I just ended up. I had a family member who broke their arm, and I had to go to the emergency room with them. And yes, very familiar, and it's so it feels so
1: arbitrary, right? It's just like. Yes, <laughs> the, the FACES scale is fascinating to me because on the one hand, if you're working in emergency medicine, you need something fast, you need right. something simple, and you need something that goes beyond any cultural linguistic differences even though actually there is some research that even the facial expressions there are not actually universal but let's just ignore that for now um so of course I get why you would have the scale but then on the other hand it's so reductive um and especially in the context of someone like my mother who lives in chronic pain like being like what are you feeling on a scale of one to ten like it's just you know it's so um problematic. So on the one hand, I want to say, this is, of course, this has a use. And on the other hand, I want to be like, okay, we need to really recognize that this is just a heuristic that's not capturing qualitatively what's going on uh, almost at all. Um, So at the end of that first chapter, after analyzing all this, you know, diving through a lot of different sort of literatures on pain, uh, I just make this the somewhat simple argument that like, look, pain still functions the same on all these theories. It's a command to return yourself to a state without that pain or more, more technically some I'd call this allostatic regulation. And I'm drawing in part there for the, for anyone who, who cares about the more dorky philo- philosophy, research stuff. There's a, a similarity between my argument and Colin Klein's work on a, on a imperative theory of pain. He's working mostly in philosophy of mind and neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I'm doing is slightly, uh, let's say, broader than what he's up to. I'm trying to make a much uh, um, larger kind of uh, claim, I think, about pain. Nonetheless, um, after going through all the theories, like here's, here's what various uh, domains of inquiry and domains that have a, a significant bearing on life say about pain. Well, what is it actually experienced like? How does how does the way we theorize and talk about pain compare to how people live it, how they feel it, and then that leads us to chapter two with the phenomenology, which is just a fancy word for exploring the general structures of lived experience. Um, you can give a phenomenology of most anything, uh, eating of you know yeah, um, uh, as long as you're aiming to understand what the general structures of lived experience are behind the thing you're inquiring about, then it's then it's uh, phenomenology in the broadest sense. And what you find in the phenomenology, and my focus there is on someone living with complex regional pain syndrome type one, is that uh, the structure of chronic pain is wildly distinct from everyday pain experiences. Um, It has profound uh, existential impacts that you would never understand, you would never experience, you would never come to realize without actually truly living in chronic pain. You can't just abstract yourself into it. Uh, And this is a point that happens multiple times in the book where I'm like, hey, look at how people talk about this thing. Then focus on how people actually experience it. Wow, these don't actually match up. Mm. And this is one of the reasons I love phenomenology um, as a method is this is one of the main benefits is it will often provide us insights into how things actually are that differ from how we tend to talk about them, theorize about them uh, and all of this stuff. And so I repeat that move, you know, chapter three is theories of disability. Chapter four, let's talk about the lived experience. Um, chapter five, I do, I, I uh, fudge it a little bit cause I can't give a full account of theories of ability cause that'd be like a 50,000, 000- <laughs> page book. Um, so I just focus on one theory of ability. And then I do a kind of phenomenology of it in in the final chapter.
0: Yeah. It, it's funny. You said, uh, and you referenced it, and I just had uh, an example, but for instance, people like to extrapolate from their own version of pain, right? Which is, uh, I believe you said allocentric. What, what was the term?
1: Uh, allostatic.
0: Allostatic. Um, was it recapitulation or?
1: I think, what
0: did I say? Oh, <laughs> now I've ruined it. <laughs> I think allostatic regulation was the term I used to Allostatic regulation, the idea of returning to your the state of not pain, right? And so people think about when they, when people talk about chronic pain, they're talking about, they're like, oh, I broke my arm and it hurt for a month. And so they're like, oh, it must be like that, but longer and it hurts more. But the difference, and I, you know, I just had a, that family member that I just took to the emergency room. Um, the difference is that you can return to it not hurting anymore. Right. Like you can, and that's like, that is a profound difference, right? The idea of like, when you look at something and you're like, well, I can work on healing faster. I can eat better, or I can choose to prolong this pain by, you know, maybe I shouldn't move like this, but I'm going to move like this. Cause I want to go to this, you know, this event or something like that. And you're like, well, it's going to prolong my end goal, but I, I have, you know, I have an end in mind. Whereas yeah. with chronic pain, the idea is it's just this kind of never ending vista. Right.
1: Yes. Yes. And there, uh, there often becomes no before pain, because the mm. one has been in chronic pain for so long that you lose the sense of a before. Yeah. Um, and that cuts multiple directions. I mean, that can actually be part of coping strategies mm. is to kind of create a new normal where the pain or the way in which one is conceiving of and kind of orienting oneself towards the pain Uh, is not a get rid of but a live with it this is uh, a very common um, approach in interdisciplinary pain clinics this is now for for many decades but that doesn't undermine the terribleness of it like ultimately (laughs) it still hurts Um, yeah 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 it's still really shitty it's still um, and I should add at this point uh, so there's a lot that's going on at kind of the meta-philosophical level of the argument, um, that you really it can only be seen when one takes the book as a whole. And one of the things that I was very concerned about with this project, um, was trying to give chronic pain sufferers more of a voice relative to disability studies. For years and years now, people have complained, like, hey, a lot of the mainstream disability studies work, a lot of even mainstream disability activism has ignored people who live in chronic pain, people who have chronic illnesses, people who have disabilities where it really does seem to be bad in and of itself and it's not just a question of making the world more accessible. And I wanted to find a way to to give space to those experiences and say these are disabilities too, but also show how they're really, really unique. They are yeah. wildly different than, I don't know, someone with a chondroplasia, someone who's a little person and that's their, their form of their experience of disability in the world, or someone with vitiligo or someone who's deaf. Like these are all, the, all of those cases I just gave should not be placed in many, 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 many different respects in the same bucket as a chronic pain sufferer, but we do want to see the umbrella of disability justice and the umbrella of disability thought in the, the grandest sense as being able to include these groups. Uh, and certainly politically, we want to be able to support all, I think, people. I mean, really, we want to be able to support people with all sorts of body minds, period, full stop. But insofar as we're using the ability disability binary, uh, we definitely want to be able to su- support all people with disabilities and not exclude people just because they're harder to fight for politically or something like this, given the current. You know reigning powers that be
0: so uh and for you and if this is too personal feel free to brush this aside but i mean when you talk about chronic pain uh, one of the things you you mentioned is how people dismissed your mom's pain you watch that get dismissed for what i would say are misogynistic reasons
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, if I rewrote the book today, I would have spent more time talking explicitly about questions of, uh, uh, gender and sex and this sort of stuff. Like some of that, I think got a little bit too submerged in the footnotes. Um, but enough with the caveats in, in my mom's case, it was so obvious that these sorts of um, epistemic injustices she was experiencing in various clinical spaces. So the sorts of times where her own testimony about what she was experiencing or what she needed was not being listened to, being diminished, or being you know completely ignored. Um, gender was playing a role, and the fact that she was seen as a woman who is further a caretaker of a disabled son. Was, uh, was playing a role here. And the reason it was so obvious it was playing a role is the sort of responses my mother would receive in appointments would often be diametrically opposed if I was in the room backing up what she was saying during the conversation, or if my dad was in the room. And we got to the point where as a default, we would never let my mom go to her main appointments alone because we knew what she would be facing in terms of her not being taken seriously. Um, and it was a combination, you know, there's ableist stuff in there of like, Oh, you, you've been complaining about your pain for so long. You know, why can't you get better? There's also just like complicated medical stuff where like doctors do get frustrated when they have a patient in front of them. And there is no way to actually address the underlying causes. And I think we can somewhat split that frustration from anything about the patient. Like I'd be, Frustrated by that too, as a doctor, if I go into medicine, presuming I'm going to try and resolve (laughs) things. And with many chronic pain patients, there is no such thing as resolution. We don't understand the basic uh, physiology, certainly not the relationship between the physiology and psychology enough. We're still, you know, the the basic theories about chronic pain are still morphing from, you know, it's still, the field is in its infancy. You You had your first chronic pain clinic in the seventies in France, you didn't start getting them in the U S until the eighties. Like pain science is, is a baby. Um, but whatever justification providers might have for certain sorts of frustrations around treating something that's extremely complicated in my mother's case in particular, it was clear that this was going far beyond that to questions of bias. Um, and, and really all sorts of, of, let's go with um, problems of patient-provider interrelations. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you mind providing some examples just so that people can understand? If, if you're uncomfortable with that, I understand, but...
1: Yeah, um, so one would be, for example, um, there was a point when the opioid crisis was really starting to blow up at the level of the national media. And my mom was one of these patients where she was on very high amount, high being a relative term, um, because on the one hand, high has a sort of meaning independent of the individual patient. But in my, mom case, in my mom's case, when this started exploding, she'd been a chronic pain patient for well over 10 years. They had tried every single thing on God's green earth, from acupuncture to water therapy to whatever, and she was still having significant pain to the point where she would say, like, you're talking about cutting down this medication, like you cut it down last time, and I couldn't get out of bed five out of the seven days a week. I could not get out of bed, and I would see this shit. I would, I would, I was there. You know, I was yeah. um, one of the people who would care for my mom when that would happen. I saw the migraines where you know she was uncontrollably vomiting, and light would make her nauseous, and this sort of stuff. And the response would often be something like, well, you know, you're just gonna have to try harder. You know, it would just be a complete disregard of the suffering my mother was describing with a, a subtext of not really believing her account of the extent of her suffering. Um, and one of the things I, I find there's so much to be mad about with the o- opioid epidemic And of course, all the primary anger should go to the pharmaceutical companies, the Sackler family, you know, all these people who drove it. But one thing that has driven me really up a wall about the clinical side response is uh, the providers who have, it seems to me, not fought enough at a public policy level to say, sure, we don't want to have, we don't want to be pill mills. But when you say, oh, you simply cannot prescribe above X, for patient Y, and you're not taking into consideration their particular history you're not giving you know this is uh, that sort of top down um uh decision making is just saying f you to actual yeah. chronic pain sufferers. it's saying your suffering doesn't matter these people up here have decided what the rules are going to be and good luck and you might die and we don't care and maybe you'll never get out of bed again we don't care um and so did, that was that's been very frustrating to watch. And my mom is not remotely the only person living in chronic pain who has gone through hell because of the ramifications of the lockdown or the the kind of reflex against the opioid crisis. Um, yeah, it's I mean it's a terrible situation all around. Like there's so many bad actors at play here. Um, yeah, yeah. I um,
0: and I think this is a good. Uh, segue to, I think the move you make to try and provide like a, a positive redefinition of, of ability, right? Um, when you talk about uh, a high amount of pain meds or, um, this idea of, uh, returning to a pain-free state, um, there's this idea of uh, you know, of average, of normal, right, that that we're dealing with. Um, I had a guest on, it was a good friend of mine, and he is the first hospice chaplain in uh, the UP, Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And uh, he said one of the, it's. I mean, for him, he's dealing with people who are, they're about to pass away for, mo- for the most part, right? And he said one of the biggest problems that, he faces in medicine is this idea of wholeness
1: right Mm. that
0: people when they think about when they think about their lives they have a a picture of like uh and this so i I can't remember the term they ended up using but i was like why don't they call it holistic health right because he he takes care of their spiritual needs right Mm -hmm. and he's like because it gives the idea that they will be whole and uh, Uh. no one ever ends up being whole like at the end of everything, things like I mean, a good example, uh, not chronic by any means, but uh I had some uh digestive issues that led to me like with some stress where I would I would grind my teeth and I cracked a tooth and it is gone. Like the tooth is gone. It's never coming back, right? Like, like you know what I mean? And it's weird, you know? It's like uh, you know, and that you, know, you look at scars, you can think of as like in some cases is decorative, right? You like, but like. When you lose a tooth, it's like it, it's gone. That's that's it, right? And um, especially if you grow up uh, in that kind of normative state, right? Like you just kind of assume that you will continue in that way. But everyone accumulates these things over time, and so this idea of um, you know, and I, I think in the book you, you mentioned that your your grandparents, uh, that the particular conversation with your uncle. And then you looked across the table and there were multiple people who were either uh, disabled or about to become disabled uh, through age even. And everyone ends up when we talk about uh, ability here, and I'd love for you to get into that. Everybody ends up with some form of inability, right? And the idea that we should operate from some, uh, very hypothetical idea of wholeness, I think is misguided from the start. And that was that was kind Absolutely. of his takeaway.
1: Yeah, yeah. The line that, that my uncle said was, I'd rather be dead than disabled. And this is a, a, such a common, terribly common refrain. Um, and part of the, to go full circle to, uh, to the beginning of our conversation, part of the spirit of the book is to try and genuinely say, okay, why do people say that? Like, what is actually going on when someone says that and kind of bracket for a moment, the offense that I take to that phrase, or, you know, of course, let's bracket it for a moment, try and see what's going on here. Um, and as you, as you, you said it very well, there is this uh, almost ideological commitment to the idea of ourselves as whole and healthy and able-bodied and that what we want as we age is to stay as healthy and as active and as whatever as we can. And there is something to that. That's fine. Um, But there's also at a deeper level, I think that's just uh, uh, active ignorance and naivete about like how bodies work. Like if you want to live to be old, like, let's say you want to live to be 90, you're saying you want to become impaired through aging in various ways. You cannot get to 90 and have the same sort of body that you had in your 30s or 40s or 50s or even 60s. Um, And if you think otherwise, go meet some people who are in their 90s. Uh, That's (laughs) not how biology works. Right. Humans are set up to have shifts in the way that the, the body functions over time, leading to death, and we all die. So um, the way I think about it is to try and flip it on its head. So instead of wanting, you know, holding deeply onto this idea of I'll always be able to do X or Y or want to be whole or whatever, it's about how can I become the sort of person who ages well, who learns how to be disabled in really awesome ways, who, you know, I think about this with because my whole job is based on writing and reading, you know, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow and I had a severe traumatic brain injury, um, everything I do day to day, I mean, I, I couldn't do anymore. And I've thought about this a lot. Like, well, I work on this stuff constantly Am am I, am I afraid of something like that? Is it, isn't it still reasonable for me to be afraid of that particular state of disability? And it's like, well, yeah, there's some, that would be a loss, a loss relative to what I currently value, but I could still totally live a life and do any number of other things. And my goal or the sort of person I want to be and what disability studies and living, um, kind of living in disability communities my whole life has taught me is it's about living well with how you find yourself in the world. And the more one acknowledges the interdependencies, the deep, deep interdependencies of our, our lives and the variability, the constant variability. I mean, it's like, if I catch COVID tonight, tomorrow I might be you know, I have no idea what's gonna happen an hour from now, uh, certainly not a day from now, and oh my God, not a year from now. The more I can acknowledge that and come to accept it as a port of what it means to be human, that I'm going to be in a much better position um, to enjoy life. No matter what age I'm at, no matter what, how I find myself in the world. Um, and interestingly, that might sound, I mean, depending upon someone's background, that might sound a little bit Pollyannish or like, but Joel, some things are really bad. And it's like, well, go read the book. Yes. Some things yes. are really bad, but like, even let's take, let's take a really intense scenario. Let's say, uh, so if you haven't read, have you read The Diving Bell and The Butterfly? Or the Butterfly and The Diving Bell? You run I have. This? Uh,
0: is that with um, Stephen Hawking?
1: No, it's a, they made a movie of it. I think it was like a, oh boy, we're going to forget the details. The point is there's someone who's stereotypically able-bodied, gets hit by a car or has a stroke, I can't remember, and ends up with locked-in syndrome. So... Mm. Zero control over his body except the ability to blink his eyes. And this is a very extreme example of an right. ability transition, right? This is about right. as extreme as you're going to get. It. And interestingly, all the research on something like Lockton syndrome, there's more research on less extreme transitions. So, like going from fully ambulatory to paraplegic from the neck down, shows you're going to have severe depression, suicidal ideation probably full-blown suicidal everything for those first six months to perhaps even two years, because you are experiencing a significant loss relative to how you were before. But the research shows over and over and over and over again that once there has been enough time to kind of transition to new normals, new sets of expectations, that in-state The transition to which was indeed terrible, that in-state people still find their lives worth living. They Mm. still want to be on earth. They still want to, you know, uh, do whatever the new things are that they're doing or the modifications of the old things. Um, And this is, uh, I think this is a lesson that... for some reason, well, it's because of the ableist conflation. Once it sticks in your head, it holds on real tight. But I think the more one can uh, recognize the ableist conflation for what it is, which is an error, uh, one can start to appreciate these sorts of studies about the relationship between quality of life and states of of one's body mind that one might otherwise think would necessarily be terrible, might even be worse worse than death. And again, that just rarely pans out. That is not the majority of the cases. Obviously there's gonna be exceptions, but um, the takeaway should be uh, uh, most, if not all, most lives are worth living. Let's put it that way.
0: You know, even as you're talking uh, for our listeners, I think there's an automatic practical application, which is um, life is in many ways about learning to deal with loss, right? Like if you, and and we see this a lot, like if you imagine and you anticipate loss, you know, um, that I mean, that's like the deaths that hurt the most are often the ones that are sudden, right? Um, yeah. But also you'll see people who, instead of accepting what's happening, they deny it. You know, you see this with people who can't handle family members passing on. And it yeah. seems very similar that, it doesn't necessarily uh, it doesn't take away that pain but it does help you deal with the transition to anticipate and think about like what what would happen if i lost uh some some of the abilities that i have right what would yes. i do and and like I, you know the truth is uh i was talking uh i meet with a group of men and talk about parenting and what one of the things that like we've talked about quite a bit is I am parenting my child so that I can be replaced, right? Like, or maybe not replaced, <laughs> but like, so that, I mean, eventually he should be a fully functioning adult without me, right? Like that's the goal. Yeah. And <laughs> because, uh, or inside a community where he is fully functioning, right? Which is also, uh, you know, I think that goes into your your theories of ability because, and it's it's yeah. very similar here is that when we talk about aging well, right? Like people, one of the things like people kind of just want to become twenty four, and they just want to stick there, right? And they and they are able to hold <laughs> yeah. on to that for like a decade, and all of a sudden they're like, you see people panicking, right? That's the whole point of like yeah. the midlife crisis. They're like, oh shoot, I have a whole nother half of my life to live, you know, statistically speaking, and I have not thought about how I want to live it because I wanted to be, you know, uh, Top Gun playing beach volleyball, you know, with that body, you know,
1: (laughs) (laughs) and we can't all be Tom Cruise and spend a hundred thousand dollars a month on personal trainers, on personal (laughs) hair, personal skincare management, you know, we can't, uh, can't all do that. No. Yeah. I I think you're right. The, I, I love this idea that part of what parenting is, is to make yourself, you're not irrelevant, but yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like, you are-
0: um, I'm going to be gone eventually, <laughs> like,
1: yeah, like it's, that's the way no, life works, no. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and aging in particular, the, the the I'll just go with American. I mean, this level of generalization is weird. There is no American anything. We're like 50 <laughs> <Yeah>. barely <laughs> held together. Yeah, but just pretend for a moment that there is something like American culture. Um, The relationship towards aging is just ass backwards in Mm. this country. Um, Japan provides such a a powerful counterexample where massive respect is given to those who are older. There is a, I mean, joy might be going a little bit too far, but there is a a deep um, appreciation of what happens as one ages and as one comes to experience the world in, in different ways, but also gain in wisdom, gain in all sorts of other things. Um and there isn't this, although there are, you know, issues with like workaholicism and stuff in Japan, there's certain parallels with the US there. But the the idea that you would want to avoid getting older, um, and that you want to just hold on to this, you know, like that just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. If you really think about it, it makes zero sense, I don't think. Um, One other thing I wanted to add about the comment you said just a second ago about loss, I think another really important point that I make in this book, but this is something that people in disability studies have said and disability activism from the beginning is that what is going to count as a loss and what is a loss is highly individualized. Mm. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I'm in like the first or second week of teaching disability and bioethics or philosophy of disability and I'll have a student who has, doesn't know anything about deaf culture, uh, capital D deaf uh, culture, where um, people who understand themselves in, in this way do not understand deafness in terms of audiological loss. It's not that they can't hear. It's that they, they can sign, it's that they get to be a part of this amazingly awesome uh, uh community and set of histories that revolve around a particular form of communication, whether it's American Sign Language, British Sign Language, whatever it might be. I, and on this view, the idea that deafness it, to be deaf would be losing something is nonsensical. It, it completely mm. misunderstands what it means to be deaf. And interestingly, within deaf culture, there's there's disagreements about this. People who are congenitally deaf. The moment you think about it, it is really weird to say they've lost anything. They were just right. born into the world, exactly how they were. They've they signed, they hopefully have had, you know, a, 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 a community of signers and all this stuff. To think about deafness as a loss congenitally, I think is really messed up. If you become deaf at 18, or if you become yeah. deaf at 40, whatever, well, now of course loss is going to be a component of it. But How much of a loss or how much some of those losses might be outweighed by gains of getting to enter the deaf community, that's really complicated. And this movie, uh, there's a movie that captures what I just said so well. It's really designed for hearing people. It's not like, uh, this is not like a deaf film in the sense that it's for the deaf community, but it's called The Sound of Metal. Um, Highly recommend watching this because it, in, It's not perfect, but I do think it captures so well how questions of community and questions of learning how to give up certain things and gain new things relative to one's prior set of expectations, that that can be the entire difference between feeling as though you hate the way you are in the world versus accepting it and loving it like that extreme. Um, in the, I'll give the basics of the plot without giving anything away. This is like what you'd find out in the trailer. A metal drummer uh, who's in his, I think, mid-20s loses his hearing very mm-hmm. rapidly over the course <laughs> of maybe six months or something. And it's about him dealing with, and the fact that he's a musician, I think, is very important to the plot. It's not right. just a generalized uh, loss of hearing for him. It's the loss of engaging, well, he thinks it's the loss of engaging uh, in an activity he loves. There are deaf drummers. Um, he didn't seem to be aware of that uh, until later in the film. Um, and, and the film shows that his primary fight is just accepting being a part of the deaf community. And if he would just be a part of it and kind of give up some of his past expectations, it's so clear he would have been happier. Uh, and I won't say what he does choose to do at the end, but I think the film does a very good job of laying out some of the complexity And there's a whole set of uh, conversations that the film only slightly highlights, but about debates over cochlear implants Mm. and the extent to which those put one in a, can often put one in a complicated position of straddling the hearing world and the signing world. And yeah, Mm. it's very, very complex. If you want to read more about that, by the way, specifically debates over cochlear implants, and relationships between various parts of the deaf community and what that means is a book called Made to Hear by Laura Malden M-A-U-L-D-I-N. Very, very insightful analysis um, and also lots of good references to go deeper if you look in the the notes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I thought about this, you know, I mean, even as you're talking about a, a metal drummer, uh, y- you start out with a love for guitar, like hearing is a big deal for you. Um and I think people understand this. I think a good example of this is I talked to so many people who lost their sense of smell and smell and their sense of taste from COVID. And they're like, eh. and for me, <laughs> I was like, well, for me, I love cooking. So that's like, I do most of the cooking in our house. That's what I like. And I was scared to death that that was going to happen to me Yeah, because if I couldn't like, I'm like, that's something that I love to do. I do it for hours every day, you know, like, I mean, I I cook for several people, right? Um, I have a couple of households going here.
1: So, <laughs> and imagine like loss of smell. If you're a, I always say this word wrong. Sommelier, the professional wine people. Like imagine sommelier? loss of smell yes. in that case, it would just be complete destruction of what you've, you know, put your life into. Um,
0: right, yeah. and there and there is that like that. It's there's different types of loss, but they're guided by the by the culture. And I think one of the main points that you make here is that. And it's because we're very individualistic in the West, I think, is part of the problem is, uh, you know, we, I am an able bodied person. That's how like people would term me. Uh, on the other hand. If Publix stopped deli- like having food tomorrow, you know, I'm here in central Florida.
1: <laughs> There's Publix, nothing I could do.
0: Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Publix. Uh, Walmart, or whatever you know, uh, it's central, Flo- rural central Florida. Those are my options, but um, <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> um, hey, CVS has some food too. Yes, yes, but if if food stopped being delivered, like I don't have that capacity right now, and there there are ways to develop capacity in the world, right? And they can be, uh, they can be negotiated with you, the way that your body is but we're all limited. We're all like when we talk about the, I can. And so I I think a great way to kind of wrap this up is, can you talk a little bit about reframing the idea of I can?
1: Yeah. So the the real punch of the book comes in chapters five and six, but of course, I don't think the punch can be appreciated unless you go through the other ones. Um, But yeah, the, the big one is to say something like this. Every time You or I or anyone says I can do X, that's just wrong. That's just a (laughs) philosophical error. Now, heuristically, of course, you know, there is it's capturing something. Ooh, I can pick up this thing like it is. I'm not saying it's like nonsensical. But if you go deeper ontologically about the nature of what it of, of how ability works, there is no action without affordance for a particular action. There is no actions, there is no set of actions or individual actions that are merely located in some distinct uh, individual subject or individual fill in the blank. Uh, The way ability, the way the I can works is always I can given a particular context or I can relative to whatever. Uh, And one of the examples I use just because it's easy to wrap one's head around is like breathing it's very easy to see someone who has severe asthma and be like, oh yeah, it sucks that they can't breathe well and I can. And it's like, well, if a, if a, if a nuclear bomb drops uh, right now, just far enough away that let's assume it doesn't vaporize us immediately, you can't breathe either. Or if all yeah. the oxygen somehow just magically gets pulled out of the room, you can't breathe because the I can breathe is not located in an individual's lungs or in an individual's bodies, it is a relationship with, with an environment. And I think that that goes, that point, which on the one hand seems simple and on the other hand seems radical, it goes all the way. It yeah. is just true of any sort of I can P, I can X, I can A. P is in yeah. um, the variable, not as in urinate. Uh, just Well, right I mean, <laughs> but I, also it does that. come
0: up. Yes, yeah, it does come up. No, I also I, urination. Yes. I appreciated the absurdity <laughs> of your examples, but what's crazy to me is even as you're talking about the I can breathe, uh, one is the example of China, where the pollution is so bad because of environmental conditions yeah. and communal and political choices, right? Social choices, political choices. Um, and I do the distinction between political and social there is <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's some people on the ground who would not make some of those choices. Sure. Um, yeah. but, uh, we actually had the same thing. I, I don't know if you know the work of Dr. Rebecca Lave. Uh, she started, she has started kind of a new field, critical physical g- geography, which is the, in, how an environmentalism, uh, environmental science and social and cultural conditions interact and Ooh. what got her interested in this. And I didn't even know this. I'm, you know, well, I don't want to make comments on anyone's age. So, uh, <laughs> I was, I was too young to know this. So. Sorry, Dr. Doctor Lee. Um, <laughs> but when she was a, a girl in uh, Southern California d- during uh, recess and PE, she remembers her lungs hurting because the smog was so bad. And then they did the clean air act. And it actually like you could go outside and breathe clean air. And I didn't like I didn't know that we had made the and this that's a good example, you know, even as we, we kind of end here, just talking about like you, you can <laughs> like that's an that's an affordance for everybody, right? Like yes. that's like yes. like if you if you screw up the world, like at, like then nobody can breathe. Yes. Um so yes. but kind of as we as we conclude here, I want to be respectful of your time. And this has really been uh I, I've really appreciated this, and I think it's it's just such an important topic. And it's a it's a I appreciate how it's forced me to open my vision. Uh, and just kind of realign a, a lot of things because uh, I didn't, I'd never articulated the ableist conflation. It just kind of existed in the background. Right? For our listeners, uh, what's, what is like a big takeaway you'd give them? What's the last thing you'd leave to our listeners?
1: Uh, the big takeaway is that uh, we, whether that we is the local community you live in, the nation state you live in, wherever you are, we have to be more communal about how we think about well-being and the good. And I'll give you the way, you're, uh, the way you set up your last comment is actually a perfect ending ending spot, but I'll give a slightly different example than air pollution. Sure. Right in the U.S., we have uh, some of the worst rates of cardiovascular disease and diabetes in particular of, well, we have the worst rates of any advanced industrialized uh, nation, advanced in quotation marks, of any settler colonial Right, right, right. You know what I mean. (laughs) Yes. Nonetheless, um, when you actually start to dig into why that's the case, it's very easy to be like, "Oh, well, there's a lot of people who have bad eating habits," you know, and and you blame it on the. You might even go so far as to blame it on their inability to, like, I don't know, uh, control their appetites or do whatever, and that's just. False because if the moment you back out and don't take this ability or or how one's body is or what one does is merely in the body, you see we have some of the worst cases of food deserts of any nation, of any, let's go, global north nation. We have uh because we've subsidized the corn industry to the tune of tens of billions of dollars over the last few decades we have higher amounts of high fructose c- corn syrup and processed foods than any other nation in the global north because of redlining and segregation against communities of color where the food deserts are and where you know like and you can just lay out uh a causal uh, a, a causal in a certain sense ex- explanation of how it is absolutely wrong to think that this somehow is a question of individual choice or individual ability, although that is a factor, although of course there is a component of that at play, we should be focusing on how we change the structures and the environment. We should not have food deserts. We should not have segregation. Um, we should, you know, there's all of these shoulds that are a question of how we act together, how we. Um, How we think of ourselves as a community, again, whether it's at a local level, a state level, a nation state level, or as climate change is every single waking day further proving to us how we think at literally the level of the globe. Because if we don't do that, well, we're already on a path for tens of millions of people to die because we're thinking so individualistically and because we're thinking of ability, we're thinking of the I can as stopping at the individual and that's just wrong. And that will lead us to a hellish, well, the world's already hellish, a much more (laughs) hellish world the longer we continue to make that sort of error.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, that's an incredible way to end. Uh, Dr. Reynolds, thank you, really appreciate it. We'll of course make sure that there's a link to your uh, book in the description. Really appreciate your Thank time you. today. Thank
1: you. It was uh, I, I actually I never hold up my book during these interviews. I'm pretty sure I'm like contractually obligated to. So <laughs> uh, there you go. Um, it was a it was a delight to talk with you. Thanks so much for um, not only reading the book but clearly thinking about it very deeply. I, I really enjoyed our conversation.